Ezekiel chapter 16. We're going to read verses 1 through 14, break it down, then we're going to keep going. Where Our goal is to hopefully get all of chapter 16 done tonight. But again, I can't promise. We'll just see how far we get. It's a big chapter. It says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites, and your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the, gate, at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was fi of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Now, as I'm going to hopefully be using God to help you see tonight, this chapter is God recounting to the nation of Israel their whole history from his point of view. As he saw them, how he viewed them. And as you're going to see, he's going to talk about how he is the one that pulled them out of the Canaanite land and the people. And he gave them a possession and he made them a people and he did all these things. And then, of course, as we're going to see, he betrothed himself to them and he made them his. And we're going to take a look at how they responded to the love of God all throughout their history up until this point where Ezekiel is prophesying to the captives in, in um, Babylon. So like I said before we started our recording, this chapter is graphic and descriptive and quite embarrassing to the Jews, so much so that many past rabbis would not even read this chapter aloud in public. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of time to break down each section to see where we are so far. Let's go back to verse 3. <clears throat> and he said, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. That sounds like something kids would say on the playground, doesn't it? Your father's an Amorite, your mother's a Hittite. Something to do with army boots or something like that. But the, the nation of Israel, if you remember, Abraham came out of the people of Canaan. That's where he was living in Mesopotamia. And, and God chose him and made the nation out of him. It had its origin in the land of, the, of Canaan where the Amorites and the Hittites lived. Jump over to verse 4 and 5. It says in verse 4, And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you 
to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Now, if you remember the nation of Israel's history, when God chose Abraham to make a people out of him, how were they treated by all the people around him? Not good. Actually, in this passage, it's a very descriptive picture of, a, you know, when your baby's born, you know, actually, I had my, my, my aunt from uh, Massachusetts called me today because she heard I was going to be up in that area, wanted to set up a schedule when we get together. And we were talking about the fact that I'm going to be flying back from there on my birthday. And uh, she said, well, I've known you since the day you were born. I watched you have your first bath. I said, that means you're old because I'm going to be turning 52 on that birthday. And she said, yeah, but, but why do you give, the, when a baby's born, you treat it well. You give it a bath and you do all these things to it. You cut its cord and you tie off the umbilical cord. You treat it well. And God says, look, when you were born, nobody treated you good. Nobody looked after you. Nobody cared for you. Look at verses 6 and 7. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Now these verses describe Israel's growth as a nation under Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It also covered the 430 years in Egypt as they grew and matured. But still, because of being slaved, slaves were not a clear culture and a civilization just yet. Go with me to Exodus chapter 1, and let me just remind you of that. Go to Exodus chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation... But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So even though the nation was growing, when God moved them into the land of Egypt around the time of Joseph, there was only 70 of them, but then they multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, yet they still weren't a people in a nation just yet. Go to verses 8 through 14, though. Verses 8 through 14, the, the story goes on. God says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz and how Naomi tells Ruth to go to Boaz and to sleep at his feet and ask him to cover her with his, his garment, with a robe? It's the same picture. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture of marrying and saying, I'm going to take you to be mine as my bride. It says, and you became mine, end of verse 8. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. And I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. 
and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced, listen, to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Now these verses cover the period of time when God led them out of Egypt, made his covenants with them in the wilderness and in the land during that time. He blessed them with much gold and silver and honey and oil. God even blessed them with royalty and many nations became aware of their God-given glory, the reign of David and Solomon. And so we see, as you get this picture, God says, as he's speaking to the nation of Israel, he said, your mother was a Hittite, an Amorite, sorry, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite and I chose you and I brought you and made you. But then they didn't treat you real good after even though you were born. And then I had you live and you became a nation. You started to grow a little bit, but you weren't there just yet. And you went into slavery. But then after that, I came and I made you mine and I carried you out into the wilderness and into the land that I'd promised you. And I blessed you and you became big and you became royalty and all the people around came to see in the glory of what I had done in your midst. Sounds pretty good now, doesn't it? Start off kind of rough, but man, God was so good. But let's now go to chapter 16, verses 15 through 29. But you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became thus, became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself uh, made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them, and also ate my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, and you set them before them, Sorry, set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these who you, you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering to, by fire to them? And in all of your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood." And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber. That means another picture of shrines. And made yourself a lofty place in every square. That's the high places as well. And at the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea and even with this you were not satisfied." So here he says to them, remember, he chose her, the nation of Israel, to be his, and to be his prized possession. And he would to be her husband. We're going to look at passages that talk about that in just a second. But unfortunately, even though he had warned them many years prior not to do all these things, and that their temptation was going to be that they were going to do these things, even though he did, they went after 
instead of the God who took care of them, who brought them out of nothing, who made them a people, brought them out of slavery, revealed himself to them in the fire and the smoke and the commandments and in the blessings as he brought them into the land and miraculously wiped out all the people from that land so they could be there and made them grow to become a part of the world where the rest of the world would come to see what God had done in their midst. In spite of all this, they then started turning their heart and their affection not to the one who did all this, but to the things around them, to the nation's gods, which are no gods, to idols. that They, they took the gold and the silver that God had given them as a, as a gift, and they made idols out of it and turned their back on him. And let's just be honest, folks. How does God over and over and over describe what they did? Abomination? Whoredom. Harlotry. It's prostitution is what he says. In other words, you were not faithful to me. And you went after all these other gods and nations. You put your heart everywhere else except for where I wanted it that you would look to me. Now, folks, I'm not going to get there maybe till we get a little further along. But it's easy to just have a historical study of the nation of Israel. Be listening to the Spirit of God because the Bible says very clearly in James chapter uh, 4 that en- a friendship with the world is enmity toward God. And he causes his spirit who lives within us to be jealous. He wants us as well, those of us who have been, let's be honest, how did you get saved? Because you went looking for God? No, he came and found you. And he picked you out. And he called you to himself. And he's done all these things for you as well. And if we'll trust him, he will do those things for us. But whenever we look toward anything else but him, what does he see it as? Harlotry. Whoredom. And so understand, this same God who was patient with them for many, many years, as you're going to see, comes to a point where he says, I have to bring judgment. Go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 20. As they're about to head into the promised land through Moses, God says, the whole commandment that I command you today You shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord." Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and of water, of fountains and springs flowing in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you'll eat bread without scarcity, in which you'll lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he's given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. He'd already told them all the way. Everything we're looking at that he's recounting, he'd already told them ahead of time. I'm going to do this and this and this, and this is what's going to happen, and you're going to be blessed. But let me just warn you. There's temptations out there. Don't fall prey to them, because if you do, there's going to be consequences. Now, interestingly enough, let me ask you a question. Why does God take the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and bring them into the wilderness, not directly into the land, but actually out into the wilderness first? Why does God do that? What is he trying to teach them? Humbleness, obedience, Rely on him. That's the key. Don't miss this, guys. I want you to hear this. It's, he's teaching them to rely on him in everything. You think it's any accident that he takes them to a dead end at the Red Sea, knowing the Egyptians are going to be coming bearing down? They had no choice but to say, help. And he does an awesome miracle. Not only takes care of them and gets them through, drowns all their enemies. But he takes them into the wilderness where there's no water. Historians and Bible scholars think there probably was about a million Jews at the time. What was God trying to show them? All you have and all you need comes from me. And he puts us in situations over and over to remind us of this. Let me say something to you. Matthew 23, 12 says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And many of us have missed this truth. You're going to be humbled either way. We don't like the idea of being humbled, but the Bible says whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You're going to be humbled. Either way, you're going to be humbled. But why don't you acknowledge, I need God in everything. We see Jesus do this over and over. We see him when he takes the, 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 the 12 apostles and he sends them out to go preach and teach the good news of the kingdom. He says, oh, by the way, you're going out, but um, you can't bring any food. You can't bring any, any water. You can't bring any change of clothes and no money. What's he trying to teach him again? Reliance on him. Let me ask you. And again, let the spirit of God speak to you. And don't worry about preaching to anybody else in this room. Let the Lord speak to you right now. What are you going through right now? What is he bringing you through? How is he leading you right now to make you be reminded of your total dependence on him? What's he bringing you through right now to show you where you really are? That's what the tests are for. It's not him to find out how you're going to do. He's just putting you through stuff to remind you of your dependence and also to show you how you're doing so far in the test. Are you trusting him or are you panicking, freaking out, coming up with ways that maybe you can fix this? Maybe if I just get another loan. Who are you looking to? Who are you looking to? Go back to Ezekiel. God saw their worship of the idols of the other nations around them as unfaithfulness toward him. He's their, he's her husband. 
He used such words, such words as we've already talked about as prostitution and whoring described to describe her actions. Go to Jeremiah 31. We're in Ezekiel 16. Put a bookmark here. Just back up one book here to Jeremiah. And, uh, oh, sorry, two books. Jeremiah and go to um, chapter 31. Look at verses 31 and 32. Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was her what? I was her husband, declares the Lord. Don't, don't miss that, because if we get there tonight time-wise, this key passage is going to be launching us to a great encouragement at the end. But right now, he said, there's going to be a day when he's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and, that, and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant he made in the wilderness, which was the Mosaic covenant, which they broke. But it's going to be a different kind of covenant, and that promise is there. But they broke it even though he was their husband. In verses 26 through 29 of Ezekiel 16, we see that Israel looked to other nations for protection and provision instead of her own husband. She turned to the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, and the Chaldeans. It just lists them all there, all the ones that he, they turned to instead of God. So what I want to do tonight is I want to just take you back and have you look at a couple of these stories. It's easy to say, that's what they did. They turned to the Assyrians, the Egyptians, whoever. I want to actually take you back and have you look at it because I think you're going to see some things and I'm going to see what jumps out at you and I'm going to tell you where to be looking. As I read these stories, I want you to look for the reaction of the two kings. There's two separate kings in these two stories. Be watching for the reaction of the two kings. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 16, uh, start off with. Go to 2 Chronicles 16, verses 1 through 10. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, starting in verse 1, it says, In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, the king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah. So in case you're confused, Asa is the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. Basha is, Basha is the king of the northern kingdom, Israel. Okay? So in the 36th year of the reign of King Asa, which is in the southern kingdom, Basha, excuse me, Basha, the king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah. So the northern kingdom's coming against the southern kingdom. Israel's fighting against itself. All right, so he built Ramah that he might permit no one to go out or to come in to Asa, the king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and he sent them to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria who lived in Damascus, saying, There's a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending to you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, the king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ezion, Dan, Abel-Maim. And ba when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had been building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. All right, so before we go any further, the northern kingdom comes against the southern kingdom to attack them. The king of the southern kingdom of Israel, of Judah, actually sends word to the king of Syria, says, hey, would you break your treaty with the northern kingdom and make a treaty with us? Here's gold, here's silver, and would you attack them? So Syria does and goes to attacks the northern kingdom. And when the northern king, Basha, finds out that his area that he had just left is under attack, he stops building his siege works against Jerusalem, and he goes to go back 
So when they all go back, all the people of Judah come outside the city and they gather up all the stones and the timber and everything they were using. There was so much stuff there, they were able to build two cities out of it. Worked pretty good, didn't it? Oh, but listen, let me ask you a question. Who did Asa turn to? Turn to Syria, not to God. Verse 7, at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord, your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. Now, we've got to stop. Let's go back and read that story real quick. The prophet comes and says, weren't, weren't the Libyans and the Egyptians a mighty army that came against you? When you relied on the Lord, God took care of you. Well, some of us might know what we're talking about. Please put a bookmark here and go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Just back up two chapters. Look at chapter 14, verses 9 through 15. In 2 Chronicles 14, verse 9, says, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marishah. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathath at Marishah. And Asa cried to the Lord, his God. This is what Asa, the king, cries out, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. And the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. And the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil, and they attacked all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord was upon them. And they plundered all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. And they struck down the tents of those who had livestock and carried away sheep in abundance and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. So in that instance there, Asa says, God, help! There's a, there's a million of them! And God does a miracle and gives them the victory and the Lord defeats them. And they plundered and gathered all the stuff. Well, we could easily say, well, hang on, Jim, when he made this deal with Syria and it worked, I mean, God must have been in that. Now, as you're going to see from the prophet, God wasn't in it. Again, look at verse 7. Hananiah the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Some of your translations say to those who trust in him. Look at what it says. You have done, a foolish, you've done foolishly in this, and from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer, and he put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. What was Asa's response to God sending the prophet to say, you shouldn't have done that? He was angry. He didn't repent. He actually threw the prophet into prison and started treating people poorly. Folks, we have a problem today in the church. 
We have come up with ways that we make us feel like God must be in it because we've come up with strategies and systems and programs that have produced numbers and quote-unquote success. But God's not in it. And many of us are going to find out one day that when we stand before Him, most of what we thought we were going to be rewarded for is going to burn up because it wasn't done by God. It was man's way of doing things, looking to man instead of God. One of the things I do is I go and meet with uh, Christian church, uh, church, churches in leadership, and I meet with people that are in Christian ministries, and I keep reminding them, avoid the temptation to fall prey to man's ways of doing ministry. I got a text today. I could read it to you. It came to my phone as I finished preaching at noon today. At 1 o'clock, I was, I was done. I was driving to my next meeting. I get a text. It's from some quote-unquote ministry that will help me fundraise for Just a Preacher Ministry. And this is for those ministry executives that really know that money is more important than mission. It's literally what it says. We want to help you because we know, and we want to work with those executives in ministry that know that money is more important than mission. Folks, I could tell you over and over and over how many things are out there today. We can double your church attendance. If you'll just buy our program, if you'll help get, hire us, we'll help you fundraise, and we'll get things. Folks, the church today has stopped looking to the Lord, and they're looking to man. And one day, one day they're going to find out that God was not pleased. Oh, but Jim, look at the church. It's growing. Is it? But yeah, they went and gathered all the stuff from Rama. They were able to build two whole cities from all the stuff, but God wasn't pleased. Go to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 20. These are just two examples of when the nation of Israel turned to others and other nations besides God. In 2 Kings chapter 20, look at verses 12 through 19. At that time, Merodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon sent envoys with letters to present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure, his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices. By the way, who gave, God, uh, who gave them all that? We already read it, didn't we? God did. Showed them all the treasure, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show to them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They've come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I didn't show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word the Lord of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there'll be peace and security in my days? Did you catch the answer that he had? He was so proud of... well. I think we read it in Ezekiel, after God blessed them with all that, they became proud in their beauty. The reason Hezekiah showed the king of Babylon and all his people all that stuff was, look at all that I have. 
pride. And then the prophet comes and says, everything you've shown him is going to be carried off to Babylon. And not only that, your own sons that are going to be born to you are going to be made eunuchs, castrated. And they're going to serve in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah's answer is, doesn't affect me. That's okay. And folks, let me just tell you, that's another part of what's going on in our hearts. I just want to let you hear what God showed me as we were studying this. Not only do we get angry when someone has the, the nerve to say, you're not looking to God. At the same time, many of us are only concerned with how this is going to affect us. So I just want to just challenge you as we look at this story of God looking at Israel. Keep in mind, God has these same kind of views toward us, doesn't he? Or at least the ability to look at us and to see how, what he did. I mean, he could say to Jim, he could write out a chapter in a book about how he said, Jim, I called you and saw you in a little town of Milton, New Hampshire. And I saw you at eight years old. I actually knew you before then. And I did this work in your life to bring you to me. And I made you alive. And I've done this work where I've taken you from that little town. And I walked you through your grade school years and your high school years. And I could tell you the stories of all the things I did to take care of you and to protect you through those years. And I moved you to Florida. And I called you to my work. And I brought you into the place where you could meet your wife. And then you were blessed to be able to serve me in these parts of the country. And I gave you your children, Nicole and Elise and AJ and he could just recount everything he's done in my life but oh can I say that I've walked always trusting in him I wish I could say I have but I can look you in the eye and tell you that as I've grown in my walk I'm learning to trust him more every single day what makes it different and I'm going somewhere with this stick with me what makes me and you different from the people of Israel? I'm sorry? That new covenant that they're going to get in the future has been given to us now. And what's a part of that covenant? It says, I'm going to erase your sin. I'm going to put my spirit within you and move you to follow my decrees. Folks, that's why we don't got to worry about whether or not we can get somebody to live for Jesus. We got to stop trying to get each other, each other to work for Jesus and live for Jesus. Stop wasting your time trying to get other people to get going for Jesus. The one who began the good work will finish what he started. He's the author and the finisher of, of our faith. We just need to individually make sure that our calling and our election is sure. Because if he's in you, he who began the good work will finish it. One of the biggest things I look for in my children is whether or not they know the Lord and know how to hear him. That's all I care about because he's going to take care of the rest. He's going to take care of the rest. But a lot of us, we don't even realize that over the years, we've thought that it was up to us to get Christians to grow. It was up to if we preached at them harder or we judged them a little bit more, we could get them to feel guilty and feel shame. No, guys, we have, without realizing it, lived most of our lives not truly trusting and depending on the Lord. So I want to pray that the Spirit of God would speak to you and to me as we continue in chapter 16. Go back to chapter 16 of Ezekiel and be reminded of the fact that God says, I'm the one who did, did all this. And I did it so that you would know me and love me and walk with me and trust me. And oh, by the way, in case you missed it, he's generous. He's generous. The times he has to take away some of that gifts and some of the good things that he gives us or when we start trusting in them instead of him. When we start hanging on to them for fear that we might not be able to keep them. I know too many people as they get older in life, even though they got more money than they'll ever need, they start to worry that they don't have enough, might not be able to make it. And they become stingy instead of generous. 
People who know the Lord and know the heart of God, they'll give because God says, just give it and watch what I do. In chapter 16, look at verses 30 through 43. God said to the nation of Israel, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building, uh, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. You were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Keep reading. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings and with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure and all those who loved you and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and I will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy, and I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring, you, bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I'll make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath upon you, and my jealousy will shall depart from you. I will be calm and be no more angry because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abomination? In this section here, he says to them in the first part, prostitutes receive a payment. Israel was even worse in the fact that as she prostituted herself with all these other people and other nations, she gave them money. Now, I want to take you back to a story in Genesis chapter 38. Put a bookmark here in Ezekiel 13. Go with me back to Genesis 38, because in this story, and this is a, I'm going to tell you right now, it's a tough story. As we took a look, take a look at Judah and Tamar, you're going to see all of this encapsulated in one story. In Genesis 38. Verses 1 and following, it said, happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers. This is the actual man Judah, whom the tribe was named after. It happened that at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira, there Judah saw the daughters of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. By the way, was he supposed to do that? No, they had been told to marry people of Israel, not the Canaanites. Her name was Shua, and he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She con it sounded like he had trouble coming up with a name. What are you going to call him? Ur. Okay. All right, that's it. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet she again bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and, and, and her name was Tamar. 
But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. By the way, in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25, you'll see that there's the law of leveret marriage, that if there's a brother who dies and no offspring has been born to carry on his name, his brother was to take that wife and to make children through, him, through, through her, and those children were to be in his brother's name so that the inheritance would continue on. So he tells Onan to go do this. But verse 9, uh, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his seed on the ground so that not to give the offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die as well like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and that she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge, and she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. By the way, Judah sounds like an impressive man, doesn't he? Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And then Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, and he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or, she, or will be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, She's more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. In this story, we see, again, does God think prostitution is okay? No, but even in prostitution, the prostitutes would at least get something. What are you going to give me before we do this? Well, I'll send you a goat. Give me some proof that that's going to happen, some collateral. And he gave her his signet ring and his staff. She was a wise young lady to do that. Yet at the same time, when he finds out that she's pregnant, what's he want to do to her? Well, that was the law too, wasn't it? The law said that if some girl had been doing this, she'd be put to death. Well, God's law, it was that they were to, it, God's law was that way. Sharia law is different from this type of a thing. But at the same time, remember, Jesus comes on the scene and the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they said, the law says she should be stoned. Remember what Jesus said? You without sin, throw the first stone. God, back in Ezekiel, says this. Prostitutes get a payment. You guys, Israel, are worse. 
You don't even get a payment when you prostitute yourself with these other nations, with these other people. You actually pay them. And actually, if you look at the history of Israel, what did they do? They gave tribute to all these kings that they were turning to instead of turning to the Lord. Go to chapter 16. Look at verses. Well, actually, go, go to Jeremiah chapter 2. we got time for this real quick. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 13. Listen again to the heart of God. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless and be worthlessness and became worthless? They didn't say, where is the Lord who brought us out from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of desert and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. And not only that, the priests stopped asking, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law didn't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross the coast of Cyprus and for cross the, to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Keter and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Again, it all comes back down to, I'm going to ask you this question. Who do you trust? Who are you looking to in this situation that you're all in? I could stop at every table and I could ask you, what are you going through right now? How is God testing you? How is God teaching you about his discipline? How is he showing himself in your life and then bringing you through these trials? Some of you are going to say it's health. Others are going to say it's financial struggles. Others is going to be, I'm really struggling with worry about my kids right now. And I could just go around the room and all of us in some way or another are dealing with issues. It could be that you don't know what's going to happen next and you've got big decisions you've got to make. God is doing it on purpose because God is forever putting us in situations to remind us of our dependence on him. And he wants us to look to him and to him alone and to only do what we believe he has shown us through his word. Oh, but you got to be real careful now because I actually read an article today that someone sent to me from Maryland about how there's a famous pastor in this country who is actually Oprah's pastor. And he is now sending out word that Christians, if we're going to be relevant in this day, need to stop using the Bible and just use what we feel is right because that will help the people today come to know God. And I'm not kidding you. It grieves me, but they know the Bible says that's going to happen. So I want you to understand something, folks. There is a tendency out here today, even in the church, to stop looking to God. This person sent me this email and he said, give, give me something that I, I want to deal with this. Give me something. All I did was write him two passages of scripture. I wrote 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, where it says, preach the word, 
in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, because there's going to come a time when people will turn away from the truth and gather people that will tickle their itching ears. And then I told them John 17, 17, where Jesus said, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. If we throw away the word of God, we're done. We're done. And that's happening in this day. Oh, by the way, hopefully you understand in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, the scripture says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. This same God that is bringing a judgment on the people of Israel in this time period that we're looking at is the same God that is going to be dealing with His church first at the end, or the beginning of the book of Revelation, right before the tribulation period begins. What is, who are the letters to? To the church. I know your deeds. I know you have the appearance of being alive, but you're dead. I know you've allowed that woman Jezebel to preach false teaching in my church and allowed sexual immorality to be okay, and you're okay with it. I'm going to deal with you, church, as he's dealing with his church in these last days. Folks, let me just tell you, it's time as we get closer and closer. We all say, Jesus is coming. Hallelujah. Can't wait for the rapture. That's great, but don't also miss this. The purifying of his bride will become intense as it gets right to the end as well. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 44 through 52. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, God says. Like mother, like daughter, you are the daughter of your mother who loathed their husband and her children, and you are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite. And your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters and to the north of you. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways to do according to their abominations, with very, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and pro- prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins, Judah. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the, in the right than you. Be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear Righteous. Here God describes how since Israel came from pagan nations, she acted like her mother. Acted like those nations that she came from. Not only that, God compares Judah to Samaria, which is the northern kingdom, which God had already judged at this point. Remember the northern kingdom had already been taken captive by the Assyrians? He'd already judged them. And he also compares them with Sodom, which, as you know, God had already judged the city of Sodom. But Judah was worse. I'm going to ask you a question. How would you respond If God was saying these things to you. Hopefully repent. Hopefully, as you say, Bill, faint. Folks, please hear this. God is loving. He's passionate, patient and kind. And he he really he wants to do good and he wants to do you good for his glory and for your best. But at the same time, I want us as a church to be ready for his return. And that means, well, let me give you this picture. Doesn't all through the scriptures God describe Israel as his bride and then the church is also called his bride? In the wedding picture for the people of Israel, 
the groom would purchase the bride. He would go to the dad, agree on a purchase price, pay the purchase price, and then the bride was to make herself ready. And the groom would go back to his father's house and make things ready. And when it was time, he would come back to get her. The bride didn't know when the wedding was going to be. Here in America, we've got the date set. You ladies, you remember back when you were getting married. That's all you could think about was that day. You started eating celery. Because you wanted to get skinny as you've ever been in your life to look good in that dress. I mean, this kind of stuff doesn't make any sense to us guys. Let's be honest, guys. We didn't think about the wedding day. We thought about the honeymoon. That's all we thought about. The wedding day was just something you got through to get to the honeymoon. Let's be honest. You girls spend all this time on hair and makeup and dresses and flowers. We're wearing a tux somebody wore the weekend before. We didn't care about that kind of stuff. But you brides were to make yourself ready because you didn't know. And you were always checking yourself in the mirror. We have been bought with a price. The agreed price has already been agreed upon between the son and the father. And it was the son's life on the cross. And he's already purchased us. and He's given us gifts. By the way, you'll see that in the story with Abraham sending his servant to go get a bride for his son Isaac. The servant is the Holy Spirit. The servant finds the bride. She agrees to be married and he gives her gifts. Isn't that cool? And we've been given gifts, and we're to be using those gifts to beautify and to make ourselves ready for his return. And we don't know when that is going to be, but he's given us a mirror. It is this book. It is this book. Jeff, go ahead. Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify her, having washed her with the washing of water of the word. Yep. So that That's he the... might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Exactly. Folks, Jesus is coming to gather his bride soon. Things on the world stage are lining up like you wouldn't believe. We'll finish chapter 16 next week as we look at God's promise to fulfill his covenant. Can't wait to show you God's promises being fulfilled by grace through him keeping his covenants and his promises. But for tonight as we close, keep this in mind. What if God, and maybe some of you that like to write would have fun doing such a thing sitting down somewhere quietly and allowing God to speak your story to you and to have him tell you what he's seen. Maybe it starts for you not in Milton, New Hampshire, but wherever it is that he brought you to himself through faith. And write down, as, what would God say? And he, think of all the things that he's brought you through. Think of all the, the trials that he's proved himself through. And just have him remind you of his goodness and his goodness, the greatness towards you and his love for you. And then make yourself ready. How do we do it? We submit ourselves to the spirit of God within us who knows what needs to be worked on and what doesn't need to be worked on. You don't need to come to me and say, what do you think I ought to do? I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Lord lives within you, will show you what he wants you to do. And then you will be ready. What does Paul say? The end of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he says, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. And I know there is a crown of righteousness stored up for me. But not only for me, but also for all of those who long for his appearing. And I'm looking forward to that day. I pray you are as well. If there are some things he says, I've left you here to get those things fixed. Let him do it tonight. I love you. We'll see you next week.